Turn with me to the book of Numbers, chapter 11. We're going to do something a little different and special this morning. At the end of service, we're going to ordain some new elders in our church. So we're very excited about that. I'm not going to tell you who it is yet. And if you know, don't whisper out loud. Some of you, you, you women, your whisper stinks. Don't ever be like a military code breaker or spy. You'd be shot the first day in the field. <laughs> Either that or I have super spider senses when I'm in the pulpit because I hear everything. So... Uh, we're going to ordain some new elders this morning, which is awesome because it means there's, there's room for promotion. God is promoting. And it's always awesome when you have people that qualify for promotion in the kingdom. Now, for some people, they're not interested in it. And we call those people peripheral saints. We're honestly just kind of happy when you show up, you know, once a month or twice a month. Or maybe it's your turn to work in the back, so you show up for that. You're a peripheral saint, and you need to be very clear on it. Uh, you're not 100% right with God, and you're not doing me any favors. Some folks are not interested in any kind of promotion in the kingdom, but I can't think of any greater honor than for God Almighty to say, I trust you, and I want to use you at a higher place in my kingdom. What an honor to live for Jesus Christ in such a way the Lord says, I can't, in a sense, let you stay here. I need to bring you up higher as a role model to others. So what I want to do this morning is teach a little bit on governments and administrations and focus on the office of the elder. We should say the job, the work. 1 Timothy 3, and we'll go there in a couple minutes, but it says in the King James, he that desires the office of a bishop desires a good work. This may be why a lot of saints aren't interested in proving themselves to God because they don't want any more work. They're barely working on their job for their boss. Why would they work any more for God? When I came back from uh, Bible school and my mission assignment to the Philippines proved futile and I returned home to Cookville having not lived here in six years, I, uh, I saw Brett Scudder serving in our local church. Now, Brett Scudder and his wife and family have now been in Africa for 10 years. God promoted them again. But when I returned from Bible school to this church, having lived in another city and whatever, Scudder had stayed here ever since we were in college together, and when I got back here, uh, Brett was on the worship team, Brett was in charge of evangelism, Brett was youth leader, Brett ran this, Brett ran that. There were like 17 different things Scudder was doing in the local church. It was a work. And I remember uh, saying, goodness, Scudder, I don't know how you do all that. I wouldn't want to do all that. That's a lot of work. That's too much for me. Uh, but it was that kind of heart for the local ministry. He didn't do it to be seen. He did it because he was a servant. It was that kind of heart and sacrifice and selflessness living for the local church to make sure people were being led in evangelism, to make sure the youth had a discipler, to make sure the worship team had a male vocal to help in his range, to make sure this department was taken care of and that department that was taken care of. Those kind of people build the kingdom. That promoted him to eldership. And from eldership, he was promoted into full-time ministry. I don't think anybody will ever see full-time ministry if you can't first be promoted to the office of an elder and an overseer of the local church. If you can't be found faithful over another man's in an overseer position, why would the Lord ever give you your own? I mean, you can go start your own. Facebook is good for that, but those are mostly middle-aged white women who are lonely and need affirmation. I mean, like if all you have is a, a Facebook ministry, you don't have a ministry. My pastor says it. You're, you're a five-fold minister, and somebody knows it other than you. That's a pretty good way of putting it. So Scudder got promoted to elder, and then from eldership, God called him and Bobby to Uganda to be missionaries. And they've since pastored in Uganda. They run Bible schools. They, they, they are kind of an overseer to a bunch of ministry. Uh, they do a lot of ministry to pastors. They do a lot of pastoral conferences. So God has seen fit to promote them. There are some Christians, though, that don't want that level of work. They, we call them Sunday morning only saints. We call them peripheral saints. They might serve in one department. But this has kind of fed my adage where I say the kingdom is built by a few but enjoyed by a lot. And I don't know about you. I think that's unfair and a bit disgusting when 10% of the people do 90% of the work and it's enjoyed by 100% of the folk. I think everybody should make a sacrifice because you're all lively stones and you're all to be built up a spiritual house. So in talking about the eldership ministry, it is a good work, and people have to show that they're willing to make the sacrifice. Sunday morning only Christians need not qualify. God's never going to promote you. You're going to always be dependent on the mercy of God. And mercy is great. I'd rather depend on grace. Uh, mercy means you're, 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 
You're missing judgment and calamity by the skin of your teeth and the hair of your chinny chin chin. That's mercy. Thank God for it. I'd rather grow in grace and out labor and do more than they all, like what Paul said. So what we see in building the doctrine of eldership, we have to begin with Numbers chapter 11. Because one of the things elders do is they help bear the burden of the executive, who we'd call the pastor. Maybe in the book of the judges, they would be called a judge. In the time of the kings, they'd be called a king. Jeremiah calls the local pastor the principal or the superintendent of the flock. And we actually see that Moses is technically the first pastor but he's also an executive. He's kind of a judge. He's kind of a king. But he's a shepherd is really what it is. He spent 40 years being a shepherd over Jethro's flock. And then the Lord promotes him because of his hard work. The Lord promotes him to be a shepherd over God's flock. Much bigger work. Promotion always means more work. I think we, we maybe know that intuitively. So we don't ever want to work hard. Because if, you, if I work hard, you're just going to reward me with more work. And I wasn't really liking the workload you had before, so why would I work harder to have more work? That seems like a counterintuitive reward, but it is how the kingdom works. Uh, when you do more for God, he gives you more to do. When you do less for God, the parables tell us he's going to take away what he has given you and give it to the guy that does more for God, because the work's going to get done. And my job is to make sure you have rewards in heaven, and that only comes by doing the work of the ministry. So in Numbers chapter 11, we see Moses, the first real shepherd, He's coming to his wit's end. There's a complaint about needs. They want food. And uh, they're protesting against Moses. And so he says in verse 11, Numbers 11, 11, Moses said unto the Lord, Why have you afflicted your servant? Every pastor has felt that way, pastoring a flock. Lord, why do you afflict me with these people? We talk about the burden of ministry, and just to be transparent with you, which I usually am, the burden of ministry is you. The only difference between my job and the engineer's job is 250 people, and your drama, and your sickness, and your deaths, and your financial implosion, and your first baby, and your sixth baby, and your layoff, and your new purchase, and your debt. The engineer just has to deal with codes and long hours and a boss and CAD. And when he goes home, he just sees his family. When he goes back to work, he sees his cubicle buddy. It's a burden. It's a work. But the true burden of ministry is the people and their needs. And it can be very overwhelming at times because sometimes those sheep don't want help like they say they do. And so they say, help, help, help. And you get over there and say, there, there, little sheep. And all of a sudden, they start biting at you, kicking at you, headbutting you. Like, well, I don't, I don't, this is not what I thought we were getting into when I came over here. And then you walk away and they start bleating for help again. And it pulls on the pastor's heart. And you can't do it all because you can't be everywhere at once. And you need help caring for God's people. Now, you know God had to either love and trust Moses or hate him because we pastor 250 or so folks people here and Moses had over a million. And I don't know how you'd do that. I don't know why you'd want to do that. <laughs> but that's what it was. You know, there had to be an abundant measure of grace and ability to guide a million slaves to go from the safety of Egypt to dwelling in tents and walking in circles. So he says, why have you afflicted your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people upon me? There are folks that want ministry, but you don't understand. Moses was probably one of the premier, most premier preachers and ministers ever. And he did not see ministry as glorious or glamorous. He said, you gave me ministry. How did I fall out of favor with you? I, th I thought you loved me. I thought you favored me. Why would you afflict me with people? Why would you afflict me with ministry? In some Bible schools, they wisely teach a course called Let Me Talk You Out of Ministry. <laughs> because it's not glamorous. It's not glorious. The pulpit time may be famous or infamous or glorious to our entertainment-driven society. And you think whoever has the microphone and the, the smile and the cameras on him, that oh, that's glorious. But I said many times, this right here is the easiest thing I do all week. Preaching is the easiest thing in my entire life. 
There's nothing easier than this than taking a nap. Nothing I do is this easy. It doesn't matter the subject. It doesn't matter the topic. It doesn't matter on a whim. This is the easiest thing I do. Taking care of God's people is enough to drive prophets of God to suicidal thoughts. But that's because God's people aren't always as sweet as they pretend to be, nor are they always thankful, nor are they as always compliant or joyful, nor do they want God like they say they do. And you get any 20 of those in phase at one time, and you have a riot on your hand. So this is what Moses has dealt with. He was happy being left alone on the backside of the desert with just a bunch of sheep coming down from being a prince to just being this old 80-year-old shepherd. And now you give me a million people and you exalt me to prime minister, except we're just a nomadic group now. Why did I fall out of favor with you? Why would you give this burden upon me? Have I conceived all these people? Have I begotten them that thou shouldest say unto me, carry them in your bosom as a nursing father beareth the sucking child unto the land which thou swearest unto your fathers? Whence should I have flesh to give unto all this people? They all wanted food, for they weep unto me, saying, give us flesh that we may eat. I am not able to bear all this people alone because it is too heavy for me. Every real pastor knows that. I can't do this. Every real pastor will have feelings like I'm one bad decision away from destroying this whole flock, which is never true, but it feels that way. And there's always a time where you go meet with people and you think, this is the day they leave me. This is the day they sit in my office and cuss me out and abandon me for all I did for them. And then they're going to take to Facebook and malign our church and the families they claim to love. That's a paranoia shepherd's face because this is what we deal with regularly. So the, I hate, and I use it literally, I hate the lame excuse that the modern Christian says for not going to church. I have been church hurt. You are a sad little sheep because there's no species of being on the planet more church hurt than the shepherd. Because in fact, at any given moment, the shepherd is being hurt. Any given moment of any given week of any given day, there's some family member in the local flock hurting the shepherd. Now we're supposed to be the bigger one. It's like your child saying, I hate you, mommy. Whatever. You're a brat. You can't even wipe your rear end yet. So you don't take it personal because some adult Christians are the same way spiritually, whatever. You're a brat and you don't even know how to pull your pants up yet. So we don't take it too personal. There's no more malign, maliciously attacked, slandered, gossiped about, underappreciated, uh, cussed out person than the preacher, except for maybe the politician that half the country doesn't like at the time. So this is Moses' feelings. He says, this burden is too great. It's too heavy for me. And if you deal thus with me, kill me. The ministry calling provoked feelings of suicide. Now, you guys have never made me want to kill myself. You've made me want to kill you. I got a strong sense of self-preservation. But you, I don't have a you preservation in me. <laughs> I will fight for you. You know that. I go, I go to court for some of you. Literally, I go to court for some of you. I go to the hospital for you. I stay up to 2 a.m. talking to you. We do it because it's what we're called to do. But I want you to see the burden is so great that even though God has anointed Moses, he's the most meek of all men ever, he says, Lord, if you love me, kill me. <laughs> and he says, uh, if I have found, and I pray thee out of, my, out of hand, if, you have, if I found favor in your sight, Lord, if you love me and if you favor me, just kill me now and let me not see my wretchedness. Verse 16, and the Lord said unto Moses, gather unto me 70 men of the elders of Israel. So the solution, Moses, is not death. The solution is you need people around you. You need people to help you. That's always the solution. Even, we've made this observation before, most of the time when mankind cries out to God, the answer comes in the form of people. Oh God, save me. And the Lord sends a good Samaritan. Lord, help me. He sends somebody to witness to you. Lord, help me. He sends you a pastor. When Moses cries out to God for help, the answer is the same. Oh God, help me. Go get me 70 men. Help I would say 99.9% .9 of the time comes through people. Anointed of God, trusted by God, used of God. 
And you don't get to pick and choose who that help is, at least not if you're wise. Now, prejudice, carnality will say, I don't like the vessel. It's too short, too tall, too fat, too black, too white, too educated, too uneducated, don't like the accent, whatever. But that's a moron speaking. The person who genuinely wants help doesn't care what the help looks like. If you get hit by a car and you call 911, you don't care what color that cop is or that EMTs. You just want help. You don't care if they're gay. You don't care if they got tattoos. You don't care if they're black. You don't care if they're white. You got a broken arm and you're bleeding. Just help. You don't care if they're a Muslim. You don't care if they're a Democrat or Republican. You're in pain. They have the skills to help you. You'll submit to it. We're not that smart in the kingdom for some reason. God sends us help. We say, no, not that. <laughs> well, you're not going to get any more answers than the last one God gave you, so you should probably start there. So Moses calls out to God, help, 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 or kill me one. And the Lord says, go get 70 men. Gather unto me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people. So the people, they, the person these elders have to have a reputation with, first and foremost, is the leader, the executive, which is Moses. So this also lets me know that it is the pastor who selects the elders. It's not any committee. It's not a board. And so even in our church, I present nominees. I'll talk to our current elder board. We have four couples on there, five if you count the scudders. The fourth couple is Pastor Caleb and Miss Tiffany. They're down in Sparta pastoring their church. So we have the Ablaquas, we have uh, the Redmonds, and we have the Daltz as our three primary elder couples here. When I think it's time to promote elders, I submit that couple to them. I say, guys, you judge them too. These are who I think are good, and you examine them. What do you see? And they give us... Yeah, I agree with that, Pastor. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. But the choice rests on the pastor, the executive, the, the judge, the king, whoever you want to call them. He says, you know them to be elders of the people and officers over them, which means they're already moving in a leadership capacity. They just haven't been formally benighted. They haven't been formally uh, ordained, but they're already moving among the people as elders and officers doing the work. They're not looking for a position. They're not in motivated or driven by a title. They want the people cared for. And that's what's critical. The whole reason we ordain elders is because the people need to be cared for because the pastor is at his wit's end or he's having murderous thoughts towards himself or the sheep. And the elders have to say, all right, right pastor, go take a walk. We got this. We, we got this. We, we see that look in your eyes. We've, we've been there a time or two as well. We got it. We'll take care of these little lambs. And then the pastor walks off. He's just having murderous thoughts. Then the elders, they rough that sheep up really good. <laughs> They'll say, pastor only talks about it. We'll do it. <laughs> and the pastor comes back and the sheep is so smiley and happy. And the elders like, pastor, we love you. We solved the problem. We should have more elders cornering people after services. To be elders, you know them to be elders of the people, officers over them. Bring them unto the tabernacle of the congregation that they may stand there with thee. So even as I teach this, this isn't just for you. It's also a good refresher for our current elders. One of the criteria is that you bring them to the congregation, the tabernacle of congregation, because it's all about the congregation, helping the congregation. It's not a title. It's not even, you shouldn't even view it as a step up into ministry. It's all about the people. It's all about the people. And when you live for the people, God will take care of you. When you live to be an example to the people, when you live to help the people, when your heart breaks for the people, when you stay up worrying about the people, thinking about the people, praying about the people, God will take care of you. A lot in our circles want titles and positions they don't want the burden of people. The burden of people entrenches and encroaches upon your weekends, your vacations, your holidays. I can't tell you how much of my pillow talk with my wife is about you guys. And all my preacher friends say, try not to talk about them at home. I can't. We literally live and breathe for you guys. And there are times I say, honey, let's just stop. I don't even want to think about it right now. I love them. I'll deal with it. It's Wednesday when I preach. If they can't hear from the pulpit, let them suffer a little longer. Sometimes you have to let people hurt before they really want the help you're sacrificing to give them. Amen. You call them to the congregation, and the elders are to stand there with Moses. They can't be against Moses. They have to stand with Moses. Now, I say this because I'm no fool. Just like every one of you has been set against me or offended by me, my elders have been too. 
because that's the attack of the enemy. You know in military strategy, if you want to do the most damage, shoot the officers first. That way the grunts and the general enlisted don't know who to follow. So you always shoot the officers. Our elders get attacked, uh, but the funny thing is they usually shake it off and realize that's the enemy. I wait, I'll walk that out or I'll go talk to pastor. We try to promote people who are mature enough to come talk to me if I offended them. And we sh you should know this about offense by now. If I offend you in the service, you're the only one I did. Nobody else got offended at that statement. So the statement wasn't the problem. It was probably what was already in your heart. It just kind of did a flyby over it. And that part of your heart went, whoa. <laughs> so you have to get that right. I'm no dummy. I know probably all of my elders and their wives have been offended at me and their maturity level determined how quickly they got over it, how long they sat in it. I'm not a dummy. I can tell when my elders uh, are ripping it up and I, when they're straggling. And just like there's a spectrum in everything anymore, there's a spectrum to my elders. There are those that are really close and pulling for me. And then there's by nature just very close second, third place. Same with the elders' wives. There are those that are for me and my wife, and then there are those that are sometimes second and third place. It's just the nature of it because the devil doesn't turn off his attacks. If he can't get to me, he'll work, walk a circuit with me and my wife. He'll leave us, go to one of the Redmonds, go to the Daltz, go to the Blockwas. He'll go to the, the Andrews down in Sparta. He'll mess with the Scudders in Uganda. Anything he can do to sow discord among our church. And it's not just our church. It's every church on planet Earth because this is how this works. But their job is to stand with the pastor or Moses there at the tabernacle of congregation. And the Lord said, I will come down and talk with you there, Moses, and I will take of the spirit which is upon you and I will put it upon them. So now the elders, it's a promotion. They get a measure of the pastoral office or the, the executive office to help them carry the burdens of the people. And I teach our elders and our deacons this, that when you're promoted to that position in the local church, it is supernatural. There is an anointing that comes upon you you don't have anywhere else. And that anointing helps build the church. The deacons help build the church. The elders help build the church. The thing I warn them at, about in private is that it will also build your private life. It'll build your career. It'll build your marriage. And this is why we don't want to fall from that position because then sometimes what you've built with it, you lose. Now, you can disagree with that doctrine. I affirm it. I've seen it played out time and time and time and time and time again. And so you have to be very mindful that if we ever have to demote you or sit you down or you want to step down, you're going to risk losing some stuff if it isn't done properly that you built with the elder anointing or the deacon anointing. We, we take this very seriously. This isn't just a, a patty cake We're, game. We're dealing with the kingdom here. I'll take of the spirit which is upon you and put it upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, that thou bear it not thyself alone. And so this is the whole purpose of elders. Moses had 70. We don't need 70. We don't have a million people. But on top of 70 elders, he had 120 judges. He had Aaron and Hur. He had Joshua as his military general. He had Bezaliel and Aholiah building the tabernacle. He had a priesthood. He had a lot helping him administrate the governance of a nomadic kingdom. Because that's what they were for 40 years, a nomadic kingdom like the Midianites, the Amalekites. Now jump with me to 1 Peter. Let's go over here. We're teaching on the eldership ministry. 1 Peter chapter 5. Being an elder has nothing to do with knowing a lot of doctrine, though it should, should include that. But there's no criteria in the scripture for being able to quote the Old Testament. It does say apt to teach. We'll look at that in a moment. Being an elder means you have a natural care for the people and you live for the people. I think about mamas. There's a, a, a meme I saw that it said, uh, if dad has a temperature of 99.9, .9, he's laid up in bed and he gets the month off. If mama has a temperature of 105 and she's bleeding... She's expected to cook three meals a day, care for the laundry, take care of the kids, get them to school, and still show up for work. Is that right? That's an exaggeration, but is that about right? Yes. Yep, it is right. Mama is that way because the welfare and the success of her family takes precedent. Now, that's a good woman. Not every woman is that way. I get it. I know we have some weirdos and some druggies and some lazy and some entitled folks out there, but that's the nature of God in a woman. 
the success of her children, the welfare of her home, the care of her husband comes first and foremost. She doesn't have time to fail when it comes to the success of her home. Her pride and joy is the strength of her home. And so even if she is hurting, she'll overcome the hurt to take care of that family. If she has some kind of deficiency, she'll find a book or a blog or a YouTube video to fix it. That should be the elder. The elder doesn't have time to be sick. It sets a bad example. The elder doesn't have time to have a bad marriage. It sets a poor example. The elder doesn't have time to be broke financially and run their money into the ground. It sets a bad example. The elder doesn't have time to have bratty kids. It sets a bad example. Everything the elder does is to set an example to the body of Christ. They don't live just for their wife anymore or their children. They live for the kingdom. So they suffer and they stay up later to set a higher example so the kingdom can get its act together. And so a big portion of the eldership ministry is being that example. It isn't being a know-it-all. It isn't having lived through seven revivals. It isn't being old. Old people can be just as dumb as new people. The eldership is all consumed with setting the example to the flock. And the Bible tells us as much. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5 here. Verse 1. 1 Peter 5.1, the elders which are among you I exhort. So Peter goes from talking to the congregation to specifically the elders in this set of churches. I exhort who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. So here's some mandates to the elders. Feed the flock of God which is among you. So you take care of the flock. You encourage them. We certainly use our elders to do that. We distribute responsibility I'll assign folks. I'll tell the elders, hey, go take care of this family. Give them the word of God. You know what to do. That takes a burden off of me. They feed the flock. They also fill the pulpit from time to time. Taking the oversight thereof. So the word oversight there is episkopos. It means overseer. It's where we get the word episcopal or bishop. The word bishop is episkopos. This is the verb form to take the oversight. So the elders, they don't come and go with blinders on. They come and go with oversight. In our church, because part of this sermon is to show you how we do things behind the scenes, in our church we have elder meetings every month and we have emergency elder meetings. It depends on the situation, maybe two or three times a month, maybe once every three months. We might have called an emergency elder meeting. And I'll ask the men or even the wives, what do you see? What's going on? Here's a situation I'm concerned about. What do you see? And that's them taking the oversight, watching out after the flock. It's a loose term and we don't mind to use it, but sometimes elders are like the sheepdogs. They help the shepherd because they can move out among and bring them in and sniff out a wolf and they hear chatter. Everybody thinks they know how to put on the facade around the pastor. That smiley Sunday morning religious southern face. But they forget there's an elder within earshot and they'll run their mouth or slander or gossip or say something in the ladies' restroom not knowing the two ladies over is the elder's wife. Two stalls over. Come on. If you don't want to be sweet, go away. If you don't want to be fed and shepherded and just enjoy the goodness of God, don't come here. It's pretty simple. We don't force you. We don't lock those doors from the inside. They're locked from the outside for security. We let people in. We just make sure they're not weirdos who look like they want to disrupt. It's really simple. Just don't come back. I don't know what's hard about that. Every once in a while we have to have this kind of invitation. Here's our invitation. Who would like to join the church? Who would like to leave the church? We're, we're happy with both. The door swings both ways. We'd love to have you. We'd also love to see you go, especially if it brings peace. Amen. So take the oversight, not by constraint, not forcing it. You, the elders can't force you guys to respect them. And we're all for honor. We don't really invoke titles around here other than say pastor. Now we by Southern tradition and polite, we say Mr. Kale and Mr. AJ and Mr. Nick and Mr. Steve, Mr. Marlon, Brother Chad. We might, we might do that, Brother Chad. And we call Dr. Cephas Dr. Cephas because he got his PhD and Brother Gary. Some churches, and I'm not against it, they'll call him Elder Gary or uh, Elder Cephas. And I'm not against that. Some of you do it because you come from that, tr- that church tradition, and I, I'm all for it, but we're not going to force it. But for us as pastors or elders, we can't force you to call us those titles. I don't care. Some of you call me Chris. doesn't bother me a bit. doesn't hurt me. Maybe makes you look disrespectful. But I, I respect everybody I can. Officer this, miss that, mister that. Is, is it PhD? Do I call you doctor? I'll give you whatever title you have earned. But we can't force people. It's 
to respect us. So that's what this says. Take the oversight, not because you have to, not, you don't force it, but willingly, not for money's sake, but of a ready mind. You do it not because you're getting paid, but because your mind is always thinking about how we can help the body of Christ. How can my family, how can my wife and I improve our reputation and our Christian walk for those that look to us, that that might help bring the overall standard of the kingdom up. The elder's life has to be epistle-worthy and watertight. When I select elders, it has nothing to do exclusively, I should say, with trust. I trust almost every leader in this church. I trust all of our deacons. I trust all of our deacons with my wife. I trust all of my deacons with, I would trust you with my money. I trust you with my church money. This has nothing to do with the trust issue. I would trust any of the leader, men leaders in this church to take my wife and kids across country without anything happening. I, I could be in Africa. I could call any of our deacons and say, any of the men, go check on my wife and not worry about anything. It's not a trust issue. It's a reputation issue. Because we're about to get to this next verse here. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but by being examples to the flock. The question is not a trust question for me. It's, is the totality of your life an example to the body of Christ? Timothy, which we'll go to in a moment, lists what that example should entail. Timothy isn't, 1 Timothy 3 isn't just for elders, it's for anybody that wants to grow up. It's a wonderful punch list, and I'm all for punch lists. Science works on punch lists. Engineers work on punch lists. Industry works on punch lists. Your life and your marriage and your home would run better with a punch list. We select elders based on whether or not they're already being an example to the flock, to the standard we hold to. How quickly do you defeat attacks? How much do you struggle with defeat? What's your emotional stability? We also make the distinction in our marriage, or excuse me, in our families, in this church family, that when we ordain elders, we also lay hands on the wives because I recognize the wives have to serve with their husbands. And I also recognize from Timothy that the wife can be one of the biggest disqualifiers. The wife can even disqualify the man from being a deacon. So we see them as teams. Other churches and denominations might disagree. They don't necessarily see a Bible precedent for eldresses, though there is certainly Greek for a diaconess or a deaconess. Phoebe was a deaconess to the church at Sincrea and is exalted as such in Romans 16. So we ordain elders as husband and wife teams, though we pull upon the men because they are the authority. But you need to also understand that as a man, if you're aspiring to the position or the office of an elder, you have to look at your marriage. Have you discipled successfully your wife into paths of victory and joy and courage? Or is she still limping along and you're dragging her on a wounded sled? Because if so, if I ordain you to an elder, that will be the dead weight. We love her. She was probably better when you weren't an elder because now you have the burden of still trying to barely disciple your wife and now care for the burden of the flock. Now let's say another sexist statement, especially if you're woke. Husbands, your wife should be your greatest disciple. She is a reflection of your discipline in Christ. If your wife is a mess, there is no way we're going to put you in high church leadership because this is the person you love more than your own life. And she's a mess. She's defeated, discouraged, hopeless. Maybe her mind's a little dizzy. And I don't mean that as a dizzy idiot. She just spins too much. Worry, 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 worry. Fearful, fearful, fearful. Cry, 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 cry. Is she courageous? Is she strengthened? Is she disciplined? Because if she's your best disciple and this is the best you can produce, I can't re replicate that. It's not about trust. It's about fruit. It's not about trust. It's about fruit. Because this verse says, if you're going to be an elder, you have to be an example to the flock. So let's go to 1 Timothy now. We're going to look at it in the New Living Translation. I'm going to have them throw this up. Let's look at what this example or exemplary lifestyle looks like. 1 Timothy 3.1. I'll start off in the King James, then we'll jump over and read it again. I'm going to read verse 1 in the King James, then we'll start 
over in the New Living Translation. But it says this, this is the true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. Now, when you combine that with Titus chapter 1, you see that a bishop and an elder are terms used interchangeably. All bishops are going to be elders, but not all elders are necessarily bishops. And that gets into a little bit of a convoluted teaching on the four types of New Testament elders, which we won't go into. We're just looking at the elders' office as we use them in this local church. So even though it says bishop, overseer, we just saw that word episkopos used in 1 Timothy 5 where it says, to the elders, take the oversight. To the elders, be an episkopos. So the two are used interchangeably. Everybody agrees on that. So it says, if any man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. And I want to read it in the King James because the New Living Translation doesn't bring that out well. The office or the assignment of a bishop is a work. It's a work. It's a work. The elders know what, never know when I'm going to call them and say, we need to get together and meet, or I need you to come up here, or we're going to stay after late. We've got to talk about this. And because all of our elders are opinionated men, and they are not yes men, and they all see things differently, it's wonderful. We never are in consensus at the beginning, but by the time we're done discussing any subject, it's like we all have different facets of the same diamond, and we're balancing each other out. And every time we have an elder meeting, which is once a month, I say, all right, let's try to keep this to two hours. And I always know we're never short of three. It's always three hours. We're always walking out by 9, 9.30 at night. The wives are so bored about halfway through it, they just sit there and smile. And then we always forbid Brother Chad from bringing up anything political or eschatological, because that's ensuring another two-hour conversation. And then, then you find out the whole time we're arguing, he didn't even believe what he was arguing about. He just wanted to see what the rest of us. <laughs> let's table that for another Sunday school, Chad. So, okay, let's jump over the New Living Translation, which they'll have up there. This is a trustworthy saying. If someone aspires to be an elder, he desires an honorable position. Now, if we're going to keep it honorable, we can only let the best of the best obtain it. But this is open to anybody who wants to shoot for it. That's what King James says. That's what the New Living Translation says. If any man desire or if any man aspires, this is not a calling that is from the foundation of the world. An apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, you either are from the foundation of the world called to be one or you never will be one. But this anybody can aspire to be. You can aspire to be an elder in a local church. But if you're aspiring for that, you're aspiring for a workload. And the aspiration is driven because you love the body of Christ and you want to help them. You love your local church. You love your pastor and his wife. And you want to see burdens removed off of them. It's open to anybody. Now, to quote my pastor, Dr. Barclay, when I heard him teach this several years ago, he stopped in the middle of his sermon and he yelled, which I don't, won't do because I don't feel like I should yell at you right now. We feel like we're on good terms in the moment. He said, shame on any of you for not wanting to be this. He, he invoked shame upon his entire church because he knew there were those there who don't want to have any part of that. No, no, no. I'm just happy with the Sunday morning thing. I just, I just want you to fix me. I don't want to actually contribute. I just want to use you, pastor, and your facilities and your worship, and I, I want to get some business connections. I just, want to, I just want to be like a little leech here. I don't actually want to contribute. So he had to yell at his church in the moment, and we have in the past here, so it's not like we're better than his church. He said, shame on any of you for not wanting to be this level of help to the body. So let's keep reading. Let's look at what these examples look like. There's 17 of them. So an elder must be a man whose life is above reproach. That means where you're at, there's nothing bad we can really say about you. That's a high standard that nobody in the congregation really could gossip about you or pick you apart. I mean, we, we cut each other slack and mercy. There's different personalities and different quirks. All that aside, we really don't have anything bad to say. You're spoken well of by the whole of the church. They just get it. Like, that's, those are some awesome people. He must be faithful to his wife. That means adultery, infidelity would disqualify you. I would almost say forever. That doesn't mean you can't be used in other places, but oh, just like if I ever committed adultery, I'd be disqualified from ministry forever. We're not of the doctrine that says you can restore adulterous pastors. I don't believe pastors who've had sex with sheep should ever be trusted with sheep again. 
because that's a weird level of pervert. The state of Tennessee does not acknowledge consensual sex between a pastor and a congregant. It's a sex crime. And that guy will go to jail and he will be on the sex register. Governor Bill Lee just passed that last year. And I'm thankful for it. It isn't just ministry. It's also psychology, therapists, and teachers, professors, because of the power dynamic that's there. So I think maybe if you've ever had an affair, I don't think we'd ever be able to use you and the eldership because you couldn't even be faithful to your own wife. Why would you be faithful to a church or folks that you didn't have a covenant with? And we also understand that to be the husband of one wife doesn't mean you haven't been married before because what would the widow do or the widower? So it's a fidelity thing. It also condemns polygamy. It's funny because the Mormons love polygamy, but they're all called elders <laughs> at 18. He must exercise self-control. So does your life demonstrate self-control. Self-control includes your appetites. Self-control includes your mental capacities. Like if you're paranoid, if you're always worried about stuff, that's not self-control. If you're delusional, if you're schizophrenic, if you're erratic, that's not self-control because self-control begins over your soul. Then it extends to your appetites. I would almost go so far as to say I don't think I could ever promote obese people to the eldership because it would be a bad example. I don't condemn obese people. That may offend you. I wrote a whole book about the fruit of self-control. Outside of our church, when's the last time you ever heard a sermon about self-control? There are debates among pastors about what's the difference between obesity and pornography because both of them our appetites taken too far. Nothing wrong with sex in the confines of marriage. Nothing wrong with food in the confines of need. So he, the elder must exercise self-control. They must live wisely. They must have a good reputation. Wise living means their life is always taking steps up. There are those who don't know how to live wisely, so they're always suffering loss. So when you have someone who even loves the Lord and has a great marriage, but maybe they just they go from the frying pan into the fire. They, they go from one bad business dealing to the next. They get laid off this job. They get fired from that job. Their life is almost just a firecracker of calamity. The fruit of that is because they don't live wisely. So one of the fruit of the Spirit or one of the fruit of the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs, is all about wisdom. And the Bible tells us, in all you're getting, get knowledge, get wisdom. If any man lack wisdom, it's one of the first prayer requests the Bible commands us in the epistles. If any man lack it, ask for it, and you'll get it. So obviously there's a bad something going on behind the scenes here when somebody's life is always continually falling apart. Just calamity, 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 calamity. We don't say that to beat any of you up. We say it so you'll get it together and say, this has got to change. We don't teach passive Christianity here. We need leaders who know how to go out and get the victory when they don't have it. They, don't, they might get knocked down. We all get knocked down, but you don't see us lay there and waller in it and just kind of roll over from one mess to the other. We say, man, that stinks. If that happens twice, I'm the problem. Let's go beat it. That's what we need in leadership to set an example that shows it can be done. So you got to live wisely. Have a good reputation. He must enjoy having guests in his home. Uh, that's not every man. King James says they're given to hospitality. You've got to enjoy hosting people. Well, if you don't want people in your home, you probably don't like people, period. <laughs> so then why do you want to be an elder? Because the work is taking care of the people, and you care for the people by having them in your home. Why? So they can see how elders live. Because elders aren't hoarders. Elders' houses don't smell like a dirty college apartment. Elders live above reproach. Elders live a harmonious life. Elders have their act together, even if they're living in an apartment. We don't care where you live. I don't care if it's a house trailer. Just make it look nice because you live wisely. The Greek is cosmotic, cosmos, where in harmony, it's what they translate as wisely here. So everything's organized. And then when it's organized, you're not afraid to have people over. The only, okay, there's two reasons why you wouldn't have people over. Either you don't like people or there's something you're hiding. And I'm not, I don't have a problem with you like, quick, they're coming over, throw everything in the kids' room. I'm okay with that. <laughs> as long as everything that gets thrown is just like paper towel stuff and shoes and toys and where'd that pillow come from? When did, when did that, when did we even have that pillow? I don't know. 
It was in the yard. All right, well, we adopted a pillow. It's better than a cat. Throw that in the kid's room. They're coming over. I'm okay with that. But there's only two reasons you don't host. Either you don't like people or you're ashamed. What's there to be ashamed of? When we were first put in as pastors, that automatically made us elders. We lived in a little apartment. We hosted guest ministers in that apartment. We hosted a lot of you in that apartment. We didn't even have room for a kitchen table. We ate at the coffee. Well, actually, we had those folding trays, didn't we? We ate at the coffee table. We also had some of those 1970s TV trays. We hosted Josh and Trish Barclay there. Pastor Aquoco stayed with us. We had a lot of people over for dinner in a little college kid apartment. Because when you're in leadership, you love people. And they love you, and they don't care where you live as long as it's safe and clean. Let me throw this out there. Nobody wants to sit on your couch and get up going, they don't want to be your lint roller. (laughs) Pastor Okwoko told me one time, I said, I don't see many dogs here in Nigeria. We were in Nigeria. He said, no, the only people that have them have them as guard dogs. I said, will you have a guard dog? He said, no, I won't have it as a guard dog. I said, why not? He said, because our people don't like dogs. And if I keep a guard dog, my folks won't come to my compound when they need help. So he could have used one for extra security, but it would have kept his sheep from coming to get help. And he wanted them. It would have benefited him to have one, but he took the hit to help the people. That's a true elder. You live in private in such a way that if anybody were to come, it would help their life. Amen. He must enjoy having guests in his home. Whatever you're ashamed of, it's real easy. Get rid of it. If you're ashamed of it and it's in your home, you control the shame. Get rid of it. Amen. Even if it's your wife's collection of, yeah, whatever. Blankets and pillows. and Amen. He says, uh, says, and he must be able to teach. Doesn't call him a teacher, but if he's having people into his home, he's discipling them. His wife's discipling somebody. It doesn't mean exegete like a ministry teacher would, but apt to teach. This is part of the kingdom. You teach your kids. You don't have to be a teacher to teach your kids. Sit down and have coffee with a man and help them through their marital problems. That's a teacher. Apt to teach. It doesn't have to be public speaking, but apt to teach because they're having someone in their home. It isn't just about cheesecake and coffee or chicken wings. It's you're here to get help. This is what's wrong. Let me show you how to fix it. You're not exegeting or eisegeting the scripture or going to the Greek or the Hebrew. You're just saying you're wrong. This is what you need to do. Here's three verses. Fix it. That's a teacher. Verse three, he must not be a heavy drinker or a King James has not given to wine. Uh, There's a prohibition to alcohol, especially in our culture. I don't have time to go into all the arguments against alcohol. If you want to use this to drink, you're lost already. I just wrote a massive chapter, 54, 55 pages long on grapes, went into, there's like 20 something words for wine in the Hebrew. And that's a massive study trying to figure out what they all mean. And by the way, they didn't have pure water. Actually, Israel's testimony, even down to Egypt in the 10th century BC was that in Israel, the wine flowed more freely than water. It's what they drank because it was easier to come by. It's a land of a lot of karst geology. They aren't really flowing streams. Everybody, even from Naaman, said this river Jordan's nasty. So they drank wine. Plus, it was their antiseptic of sorts. So don't start using this verse as to be a wino or a sipping saint because that violates the purpose of being a Christian, which is, or an elder, you commend yourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Amen. Must not be violent. It's amazing. It relates drinking with violence. Amen. Some of you work with our ladies' shelter here in town, and I would ask you at some other point, not now, how many of those ladies come in abused by a drunkard? Nothing good comes of alcohol. So you can't be violent. You must be gentle. Well, so that's a juxtaposition there. Not quarrelsome. Uh, quarrelsome, those people are miserable. You're just belligerent, hostile, always want to argue. It's always your way or the highway. You even take the devil's advocate position just to stir up a stink. You're a miserable human being. Why would we ever use you? 
We can't promote an elder to that. No, we don't need quarrelsome elders because a lot of what elders do is put out fires. If the elder shows up with their own gasoline, <laughs> elders here, how high we want this fire to go. No, you, you can't do that. You're supposed to be a peacemaker. That comes in and says, all right, all right, let's calm down. Let's calm down. What's going on here? Not quarrelsome and not love money. He must be gentle, not quarrelsome, and not love money. We don't do any of this for the money. Probably because if you love money, you'd be chasing a career. We couldn't use you as an elder anyway because we don't promote career chasing. Verse 4, this is the one that really hurts a lot of qualified people. He must manage his own family well. And that's why we have spent so many years teaching on parenting our kids, because when you're married, you become an elder to your wife. And then the Lord gives you a baby, and you become an elder to your babies. And those are your testing grounds for your ability to lead. If you can't lead your wife, you don't go anywhere. If you can't lead your children, they don't go anywhere. So now your kids are halfway grown or completely grown. They become a representation of your ability to lead and your commitment to the gospel and your ability to make the hard decision even when it's not the popular one. Because elders and leaders in the local church, we have to make hard decisions that hurt people's feelings. And we have to do it and exercise justice, blind justice, and not have a perversion of justice because that's my friend or we went to college together. They served in the church faithfully for so long and now I've got to put them out. I can't put them out. Nope, you've got to put them out. You put them out. How people run their home in private is one of the biggest disqualifiers. We can all put on the Sunday facade. We can all put on the Sunday smile, Sunday worship, Sunday suit, Sunday dress, but how you manage your family, husband, how you manage your wife, that comes back to her being your best disciple, how you manage your children, because after your wife, your children are a testimony of your ability to make a disciple. Once your wife is in line, now you begin to work on your kids and you show your kids the things of God. And because you've discipled your wife, she knows what your heart is. Now she can help you disciple the kids when you're not around. But if you can't get your wife pulled out of darkness, you're going to sow it into your kids. And now if your wife and your kids are still living in darkness, why could we ever, how could we ever put you over the church? Because it does work like hydrology in rivers. It starts at the top of the headwaters and flows down. So whoever I put in the top all automatically rains down their personal lifestyles and their graces and their struggles into the congregation. So if you can't manage your wife and you can't manage your kids, you have no business managing a church nor will you ever. So you need to understand that. It's been here in the Bible all along. We've taught it for years, but you need to understand it's not a trust issue. It's a public and private testimony issue. It's a reputation issue. You must manage your own family well, and I would add management takes a lot of work. When it comes to being a husband, because we're dealing with men as elders, you have to be able to look at your wife and say, sweetie, that's not biblical. Dry it up. Change it. Honey, we're not going to do that. You have to be able to rebuke your wife from time to time. If that's all you do, that's in excess. But when it needs to be rebuked, it needs to be done. But at the same time, that doesn't mean she can't correct you. So please hear me. There are plenty of times our wives see way more than we do, and they ought to be able to say, Honey, with all due respect, O king, live forever. You're wrong. Here's three verses. Now, if you want me to go number the troops like an idiot, I will, but God's going to destroy you, not me. But I don't think we should number the troops. O king, live forever. And O king, if you want to live forever, listen to her. But at the same time, some of you men are still afraid of your wife. Because you think, you know from experience, if you pull the slack out of her, she's going to cry and it's going to rock your little apple cart. Well, your, rot your apples are all rotten anyway. It may be time to tip the apple cart. Get a new batch of apples. And then if you don't have your, kid, your wife right, your kids won't turn out right either. It takes two normal parents, loving God, committed to the same vision, to turn out normal kids. Yes. Pastor Titus in Zimbabwe taught me that rebellion is born when children see a, a break in the parents' unity. When you're not in agreement for how you parent, kids will see it and they'll play it. And you'll send your kids to hell because they learn how to play mom against dad and dad against mom. Amen. And we don't tolerate disrespect from our children against our wives. That's called sowing discord among the brethren. We put them out. 
You don't fight with my wife. I put you out. If any of you were to take strife with my wife and she was innocent, now if she's wrong, I'll thump her, thump her publicly. But if you were to take strife with my wife, I'd put you out of the church because we're not doing this. We're not playing this little petty, redneck, demonic, strife-filled, redneck way. Go somewhere else. You're not happy here. We were happy before you flared up. (laughs) The Bible says seek peace and pursue it. Sometimes that means you have to cut people off and out. Amen. Manage your own house well, having children who respect and obey you. Respect and obey. Respect and obey. Not manipulate, not play, but respect and obey. King James says, children in subjection with all gravity. That is that respect. He says, for if a man cannot manage his own household... How can he take care of God's church? That brings us back to the elder's job description. He helps take care of the house of God. He helps take care of the house of God. And if he can't take care of his own home, he can't bear the burden of 100 families, 50 families, 60 families, whatever the church may be. He won't be able to do it. This is all back to having the example. When we select elders, we want people who we could say, church, you follow them. I got to go to Africa for two weeks or my family and I are going to South Africa for a month. You can follow these families and you're going to do just fine. Follow their marriage. Follow their money. See how they manage their money. Follow their careers. We pick candidates. uh, We see that they're prospering in their private life because they know how to manage stuff. Their job descriptions, their job list doesn't look like 100 jobs long. They're stable. They're dependable. We're looking for this. This is what we do. Elders help tether the boat that is the local church. They are pillars we put down and anchor our local church to. If a man cannot manage his own household, how shall he take care of the church or God's church? An elder must not be a new believer, so we can't have new converts. Because he might become proud, and the devil would cause him to fall. Also, people outside the church must speak well of him so that he will not be disgraced and fall into the devil's trap. So there we have 17 criteria for our elders. When I look at our elders, I want couples that are in love with each other. You can see them kind of winking and nodding at each other. Sometimes in our elder meetings, I have to say, stop it. Get a room. It's not the place. Quit flirting with the elder. And then that makes them flirt all the more. But see, that's what you want. You want the other families in the church to be able to look at them and say, look at how he looks at her. Look at how, look at how she looks at him. And even though it might be a questionable thought, you think, I know what they're doing when they go home tonight. I saw them warming that pump up after service. Man, that's messed up. It's biblical, but it's messed up. Because that's what you want for the other couples, because it's biblical. Intimacy. You want your elders to be in love with their spouse. And you want the kids that they still live at home to be respectful and excited. And look, mommy, look, daddy, and, and have everything just beautiful. And you want their money to be well organized because they're going to be trusted with God's money. I think it's a pretty simple thing when you wrap your mind around it. And I don't know if these criteria offend you. I guess we could go down to, I don't know, the intersection and find somebody panhandling. Some of you, maybe you'd like their standard. I don't think I want a panhandler in the house of God running the show. We say it this way. I say, you know, when you want to fight me, does your private life qualify you? When we look at our elders, we want private lives because that's where it proves they live this gospel at home. When you talk about how do we know the Bible is the word of God, how can we trust it? How do we know which books are God-breathed? One of the criteria that they came up with in the 4th century at the Council of Nicaea, one of the words they would say is it it rung true. They could read it. They said, that sounds like Paul's writing. That sounds like the voice of God. But the other criteria they use is that the fruit it produced in people's lives if they lived it. Now we have our Bible. So that's how they tested the Scripture to see if it was accurate and needed to be canonized. But now that we have it, it doesn't mean everybody's living it, producing the fruit it can produce at home. So when we ordain elders, we look for them to have this kind of fruit in their home. Because if it doesn't work at home, we don't export it. Now to say this, they're not all perfect. 
We get it. 17 criteria. I tell them any given moment, you master all 17 of these plates, four will start wobbling and one will fall off. That's the Christian walk. Because then as soon as we appoint somebody to eldership, they're going to be attacked in a new way. Because we appointed officers, new officers, a higher level up. They're going to be attacked in a new way. And they might have all 17 plates going pretty good today, but the attack that comes in three days causes half of them to wobble. And they may call me up panic. Pastor, are you sure this is the right thing to do? We are fighting like cats and dogs. They're going to lay me off. Like, nope, I don't even care. I expected it. Sorry, didn't tell you about it in advance. <laughs> That's how the kingdom works. We know that they're not perfect. But when we call this couple up here in a moment, I want you to know, and it'll bear witness with you, that these are folks that you could follow as they follow the Lord. What we're going to do is lay hands on a couple here in a moment. We're going to ordain them. It's an exciting thing. Um, they were nervous about it, which just shows the fear and the respect of the Lord on it. They said, well, you know, Pastor, we, we, we got some concerns. I said, I don't have any. The elders don't have any. We've been talking about you guys as a couple for a while. And uh, I think it's healthy to have concerns. If you think you can do it, if you think, why not me? Why not me? That's why not you. That's exactly it. Why not me? Let's come talk about it. Let's, let's come talk about it and be, wear your big boy iron pants because it's going to be some chewing. That's why it's not you. You got to have this fear that, oh God, if you don't do this, I, I can't fail you, Lord. I can't fail these people. I can't, I don't want to hurt these people. I don't want their confidence to be in me. I want it to be in you, but they're still going to look to me. That's what we do. It's human nature. That's why the Lord said, told Paul, tell them this, follow you as you follow the Lord. They'll walk this thing out. Amen. Amen.